Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to New Books in Indian Religions, um, a podcast channel here on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran, rajbalkaran.com. More importantly, I have two uh, lovely guests today. We have Dr. Uta Huskin, who's professor and head of the Department of Cultural and Religious History of South Asia uh, at Heidelberg University, and also uh, Dr. Astrid Zotter, who's researcher at Heidelberg Academy of Sciences and Humanities. These are two of the three editors. The third is uh, Vasudha Narayana. We will have her in a subsequent podcast, but these are two of three editors of a really rich, fascinating, brand new publication, Nine Nights of Power, SUNY 2021. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. Hi. <laughs> Hello. So Nine Nights of Power, uh, Durga, Dolls, and Darvars. Someone tell us, how did this come into being? You know, what's the, what's the story behind this publication? Do you want to take that? Yeah, I can start. Well, basically, it's one of, one of the two books as, which are the outcome of an international collaborative research group on Navaratri and Durga Puja. The first one you have already covered in, in your pod, podcast, Raj, I think Caleb has spoken about the first uh, volume, which is nine, mm, wait, here I have it, Nine Nights of the Goddess, the Navaratri Festival in South Asia. And this also had uh, appeared in um, at SUNY as uh, our book, which is Nine Nights of Power, Durga, Dolls and Dabars. And we've been meeting a number of times um, in different places. I think our first meeting was in Paris, then we met in San Antonio, no, then we met in Austin, then we met in San Antonio. We also had a panel in Erfurt and maybe even more. I don't really remember every detail, but we met in different uh, constellations, but uh, we always talked about Navaratri of Durga Puja and uh, especially of its different aspects and different local manifestations. And so this book is, as the first book, one of the outcomes of our collaborative effort. It really is a, a, a far-reaching and, and, and important group that you've amassed. Uh, I had the good fortune of participating in part of it. That's I was very right. excited to, to speak with so many scholars uh, about Indian goddess traditions. Um, and, and clearly the work has continued uh, very richly. Um, do you want to say a little bit about the volume, um, perhaps uh, how it's structured? Yeah, maybe the, the volume, so to say, is a direct continuation of this first volume, which was, I mean, even the title announced it. So from Nine Nights of the Goddess, we go on with nine nights of power, focusing on the different powers the festival um, has. So something like we look at what work does the festival do? What does it achieve? And um, our focus is on agency on the one hand. So what does the festival do? So we adopt adopt the concept of agency, which um, is a bit maybe a bit strange to um, to to people that we speak of the agency of a festival, but we um, conceive the agency and festivals as a distributed among different um, agents, 
And so the festival actually has or develops um, its own power. And we look at the festival um, in its different dimensions, how the, the power unfolds, so to say. And this is also the, the structure of the book. And I think what is also a special point in that volume as compared to the first volume is maybe the um, stress on visual material. So we not only look at the performative aspects um, more closely and the agency and the authority structures, but also provide the reader with visual material. So we have um, thanks to um, sponsorship by um, two academic institutions, the Oslo Institute and the Heidelberg Academy, we um, were able to print the, the volume with um, color plates. And uh, we conceived these picture images not only as, so to say, illustrations, but also as a potential way of knowing and the potential way of conveying our arguments. And this, I think, is um, also special about the book. It is a it is a notable feature. There, there are uh, beautiful, engaging, um, colorful images that uh, each have so much to say. In addition to what the the papers about them are saying, and for anybody who's had a taste or an experience of the festival, it's so rich. And so I'm glad that the images were included. Um, um, do we want to talk about um, the different sections of the book, perhaps? How the book is structured? Yeah, maybe the, the structure is, um, in general, we have three different sections. So maybe as not every reader has the book at his or her desk, <laughs> we just uh, go about the, the, the sections one by one. So the first will be Navaratri as agent of renewal and transformation. The second is propriety versus creativity in Navaratri. The third one is gendered identities in Navaratri. And the last is Navaratri as instrument of power. And maybe we can just go through the papers one by one, if you like. Yeah, that would make sense. Uh, say, you know, the title, the author, award or two, yeah. what it, of what it's about. And then afterwards, we could talk about the, the diverse array and who might be interested. But yes, that would be a great next step. Okay. So the first paper is by Hilary Rodriguez, and um, the title is Ritual of Revitalization, the Transformative Power of the Durga Puja. Um, Hilary's paper is, um, uh, focuses on Benares, where he did uh, field work in the 1990s. So he is one of the, I think, one of the pioneers of the field. And um, his book on Durga Puja in Benares has maybe... Um, inspired all of us to this work. And so to put his paper first is maybe also, um, so to say, um, <laughs> um, is, is, is dueful. Um, he focuses on the Durga Puja's power to transform and to revitalize and distinguishes three different levels. So the communal the personal and the cosmic level. And he argues that um, in each of these levels, the rituals of Durga Puja transform, so to say, um, the performers, but also the spectators alike. So on the communal level, we have um, the social bonding, which happens in neighborhood levels, in the organizing committees, in the families, 
and we have the whole redistribution of wealth during the, the, the festival. Then we have the personal level where the worshiper is um, empowered and transformed, where boons from the goddess are, um, so to say, um, granted to individual worshippers. And then we have um, the cosmic level, um, which also, um, so that uh, the, the Durga Puja also um, transforms the whole cosmos and is connected to fertility and um, sees the earth as a mother. So we have on the one hand, um, a festival which is deeply entrenched in the social, but at the same time, it also transcends it and um, so to say roots it in, in both worlds. So on the one hand, we have the, the whole social dimension. On the other, we have this um, permanent binding to the cosmos, cosmos and um, to the um, transcendent world. Yeah, this is maybe this what what Hillary's paper is about. Um, the next paper would be by Nilima Shuklabat, Straddling the Sacred and the Secular, Presence and Absence of the Goddess and Contemporary, contemporary Garbo, the Navaratri Dance of Gujarat. Um, this is a very interesting piece. And we were very lucky and happy to have Nilima on, on board because in the beginning she wasn't so much part of that group, but she came in. And I think this is one of the most interesting papers because it focuses on a um, Navarata celebration or Doga Puja celebration, not very well known, at least in, uh, in, in academic circles, the Garbo dance of uh, Gujarat. Um, it may not be well known to us, but I think in India it's all about very well known, yes. and very well known and the people engage in it, but uh, it hasn't received so much scholarly attention so far. And um, that's why it's very good to have, have her on board um, because she shows what happens to such a um, ritual when it is, so to say, propelled or transformed from a local neighborhood affair to being a super um, popular mass spectacular with many people um, involved. So originally, so to say, in the traditional way, it was just a neighborhood affair um, during the Durga Puja or Tomne Navarata the women came out from the house and danced around a small pot representing the goddess and um, singing songs. And this, um, these performances were um, then in the, in, already in the 19th century, they were often taken up by, so to say, people who had a social agenda or political agenda and invested with new meanings. And then, um, over the last, I guess, 10 years or so, they, be they became a, um, multimedia spectacles and um, events known to the whole youth of um, modern India. And um, the dancing itself became the, the major point. And um, she looks at what 
this, so to say, secularization of the thing does to the Garbo dance, also arguing that um, the, so to say, desacralization, as one may call it, also can be seen as a kind of re- or desecularization, uh, because at the same time, um, a religious event is, is brought to the, so to say, popular stage, which I think is a very um, nice and um, nice argument and, and makes one think about, um, so to say, modern and popular Hindu religion in, in India. It's fascinating. The, the last podcast that we did actually was on a, a monograph called Devotional Hindu Dance that, that we covered on the podcast. Um, and it was a call to the a return to the sacrality of Hindu dance. So there's some really fascinating work in, the, in, that, in that article. And, and it's really important considering how popular this phenomenon is and how little has been written on it. Um, yeah. So those two papers, just to, just to attune the listener, belong to the first section of the, of the book called Navaratri as Agent of Renewal and Transformation. And now we're going to take a look at the, the two papers in the second section of the book, Propriety versus Creativity in Navaratri. Yeah, I can take over here. Um, yeah, the second, as you rightly say, it, uh, the second section deals with propriety and creativity, but also its limits um, during Navaratri. And we have two contributions. One is by Mumita Sen, who is from Oslo University, um, no, a different university in Oslo, and myself. And uh, Mumita writes, uh, her, uh, the title of her, her presentation is Can Didi Truly Become Durga, the Riddle of the Two Goddesses? And what she's talking about is largely the political aspects and uh, political dynamics of the Durga Puja in Kolkata. So she's uh, introducing the political scene, but also introducing how these uh, uh, pandals this kind of makeshift uh, temples that are set up uh, each year during the Durga Puja in Calcutta, and which makes Durga Puja, I think, worldwide so famous, how these are on the one hand themed and artistic, but how they also are highly political. And her example are um, those pandals which uh, actually have Mamata Benaji as deity, so um, being displayed so the um, displayed as Durga and uh, how her, let's say, political foes are then also displayed as Asuras. But this is not uncontested. And it's also, um, it's highly problematic, of course, to have a living human being uh, being represented and uh, as, as Durga. And then she also um, uh, Mumita also talks about this, uh, the the actual ritual that is being performed during these Durga Pujas and that these uh, big Durgas are not necessarily, or in most cases, not the target of the ritual actions of the priests who do the puja, the daily puja, but rather a small um, uh, statue of Durga, which is at the site. So, so she's talking about, about these contestations which are going on not only during Durga Puja, but also before and after it. So this is a very highly interesting 
piece that um, also lets us think about other uh, settings where the political aspects of this, this festival are not so evident as it is in this case. Then the second uh, mm, contribution to this setting is actually myself. So I, at least I can confidently talk about what I uh, at least wanted to say. And this is entitled Limits of Creativity in Brahmin Vaishnava households in Kanchi Puram. And what I'm talking about is um, in general Kolu. And Kolu is these, these uh, uh, domestic um, setup in South Indian, mostly Brahmin households, where dolls are placed on these different stages. And these dolls represent deities. They represent, but also, um, let's say, village scenes or they represent their kind of, uh, might also be kind of zoos or other so-called, I mean, what you, we would see as secular uh, dolls that are placed there. And um, what I am looking at here is one specific golo, and that is uh, actually a golo which is set up by a good friend of mine uh, every year, who um, is in contrast to, uh, the usual Golu host is not a woman, but a man, and who also does something very special. He makes the dolls themselves. And these dolls are special in so far as they are um, made of waste material. And so that means, uh, um, and he's, he's basically continuing a tradition that is, uh, has been started by his mother. Uh, who made uh, Golu dolls from dis discarded clothes and, and uh, wire. And he is making life-size Golu dolls. And these life-size, do uh, let's say, um, I would say statues, basically, um, also represent the deity uh, Varadaraja, who is in the temple just uh, across the street. And I'm talking about the success and sometimes also the failure of this specific setup, which um, results from the discrepancy uh, between the materials, the waste material, and uh, the displaying a deity with waste material. So that is my contribution. And then um, there's the next section which, uh, of, the, of the book, which talks about gendered identities in Navaratri. And we have, in this section, we have three contributions. And one of them, actually the first one, is dealing with um, uh, masculinity and Navaratri. I mean, in general, we often hear that not only is Durga, Puja, Navaratri the festival of the goddess, but also a woman's festival. And in many ways, that is true in many places. But it's not just that. And that is what I think makes this contributions, contribution so valuable and, um, and outstanding. So, um, and, and this is by Jeremy Saul. And Jeremy talks about um, the, uh, yeah, ascetics or young men who emulate Hanuman um, and uh, uh, um, follow ascetic vows and also dress up as Hanuman. And um, 
who celebrate Navaratri in that way. So um, he's talking about what this means to their well identity, how this intersects with, I, I would say, like sports events, but um, also how this, um, yeah, how this is kind of, that's his argument, restoring their own Hindu masculinity and how it becomes so popular and widespread in that way. Um, and let me just, so, so the location of this is uh, Salazar and uh, there's another location that I actually have forgotten. Uh, Panipat, yes. And there he's, he's, he's looking at two different traditions which both place Hanuman at the center rather than Durga, which is extremely interesting, I think, for a festival that uh, is called Durga Puja. I have to say, I found that uh, contribution particularly fascinating. In a very rich book, it really stands out. It's something I, I think it's important to study because it, it's just so um, it, it's 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 challenging to make sense of. Yet there's so much there to make sense of. So I'm, I'm really glad you were able to include that. Uh, I hadn't heard of that. I mean, I know of some uh, wisdom teachings where Durga is associated with Hanuman for practice reasons, but I had never seen any of this phenomenon or come across it before so it's really fascinating yes and um i not only in terms of material but in terms of topic because we have been grappling with this uh, uh throughout the the pro uh, i i would say the project duration the question of uh how how do how does durga puja relate to ram Leela? Or do they relate to each other? Are they in competition with each other? How do they complement each other? And how do people um, basically understand the relation of these two? Because Ramila, of course, also there's a lot, lot of masculinity going on there and it's taking place. Um, so, so that is maybe also um, a topic that um, might, might be taken up in future research even, in even more pronouncedly, the, the question of the complementarity uh, or maybe competition of these two celebrations during Navaratri. And also when thinking about gender studies, we are used to thinking about femininity and uh, females and uh, to have the the other perspective to to focus on masculinity i think this is a newly rising field but an interesting one so i find i've i've, I've often noted at least in the depiction of the devyohapnya that i mostly study i've i've noted that durga very much in the devi mahatmya uh, is very motherly very martial very feminine very masculine in different ways and there's this there are these interesting threads there um uh, so listen, if there are grad students out there who are looking for a project to research on, this might be for you. <laughs> what's, uh, what's the next paper about? The next paper is by Jennifer Autogram, and uh, it's entitled Going Home for Navaratri, Negotiation, Negotiating Caste, Class and Gender Between Rural and Urban Rajasthan. And uh, Jennifer takes a very specific approach because she's following um, uh, two individuals, two young girls who um, oscillate between their, um, let's say, urban home and then 
visit for, for Navaratri, however, visit the family home in the village and how they navigate these very different identities and how that also, on the one hand, uh, of course, it restricts them much more than they um, than uh, the rural uh, setting restricts them on the one hand much more than the urban setting, but on the other hand also allows them much more freedom in terms of, um, let's say, um, playing out their female identity and so on. So um, that is, that is a, a very special contribution, especially since it looks at, in, at individual experience of Navaratri. And I do think that this is, when we look at festival studies, in general, this is an important aspect that needs to um, feed into all other aspects that we might want to research when we look at festivals. So individual experience, which is very, of course, very limited, as our own experience, of course, always is. We always stand in one corner and a lot of other stuff is going on in another corner. <laughs> we, and we have no idea of that. But that is um, I think a very valuable contribution in, in that, but also in very many other aspects, because also here, uh, the questions of uh, different caste identities, and not only gender identities, but also caste identities are addressed and uh, analyzed by Jennifer. So, yeah. The next contribution is by Ina Ilkamer. Um, Ina Ilkama has again worked on uh, Tamil Nadu and uh, her contribution is entitled Female Agency during Tamil Navaratri. And uh, so she's looking at different aspects of uh, the festival as it is celebrated in Kanchipuram, where she did her fieldwork and talks about uh, about the question of how is Navaratri actually celebrated in homes, but also how um, uh, Navaratri and especially the domestic celebration of Navaratri in homes by women is also adopted by not only uh, by other than Brahmin castes, and how that then again uh, changes the celebration itself that for example um, in some kolus that uh, are celebrated um, in non-brahmin homes also the day the goddess is fed uh, meat and alcohol because that's what she's demanding something unthinkable in, in let's say brahmin homes in, in Kanchipuram. But um, she has also one very, very outstanding example of one woman that she encountered and she's become friends with is in Kanchipuram, who not only uh, celebrates Navaratri and Kolu in an extremely grand way, but who also, and in whose celebration, this is also combined with uh, possession. So the goddess, uh, takes possession of this woman and then uh, neighbor, uh, neighbors and other, let's say, clients or followers of this woman are coming and seeking the advice of this, of the goddess through her, which uh, I find is a very interesting example how um, the adoption of these, let's say, performative tradition or the ritual traditions can also 
change what is actually going on, but which also shows how um, there is a very individual appropriation of this agency and how these, this woman uh, becomes a very specific and very, very powerful agent in this celebration as it, could, it can even be, she can even be compared to a priest in a temple. So yeah, so there's a lot of material in this present, in, in this contribution, but, and very much that um, most people will never have heard about. It's so fascinating. It just it reminds me of a little snippet. I, I, I happened to do some um, some advanced Sanskrit training in 2012 in Pune with the American Institute of Indian Studies program. And uh, we, uh, there was this, um, my, my Sanskrit teacher there had a, my Sanskrit teacher there had a, um, uh, she was from a particular Brahmanical Vaishnava lineage, and for some reason they decided to do a, a, a chandi home, a, a fire sacrifice to the chandi where the, 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 the Devi Mahatmya is liturgically intoned. Many of you in the audience are maybe familiar with that. And um, although there wasn't a particular connection to that deity, one of her aunts uh, was possessed during the ritual. And during that time, they venerated her as a murti of the Devi. And it was, it was, it was so um, atypical for their family and their dynamic. And yet it was something that was just accepted and unspoken about that. This is, <laughs> this is, <laughs> this is the, um, uh, this is the play of the Devi. So, so much interesting material in those three articles uh, in the gendered identities in the Rotary section. And now we turn to the fourth and final uh, section of the book, Navratri as Instrument of Power. Yeah, this is a section which uh, covers, so to say, more traditional topics on Navaratra. So um, Navaratra in the, one may say, in the royal courts. So celebrated by those who were traditionally charged with the protection of people and country. And um, two papers are about... Um, kings or royals that are not in power anymore. And the first one is about uh, the Nepalese case, which is my own piece. It is called Who Kills the Buffalo? Authority and Agency in the Ritual Log Logistic of the Nepalese Dasain Festival. So um, I look at the, so to say, uh, logistics of the buffalo sacrifices in Nepal. And I do that on the basis of uh, historical documents from the long 19th century. So starting in the um, late 18th century and throughout the whole of 19th century and um, ask myself, um, as we often read about Nepalese um, sacrifice that there are so many buffaloes killed. And my question was, uh, where do all these animals come from? And if we look into the papers um, that the state um, issued, it seems that um, the three, so to say, um, things, the procurement, the killing, and the after use, they had very different, uh, so to say, um, arguments to, to convey about the um, society. So in procuring the buffaloes, the whole realm, so to say, of the king, every village had to contribute a buffalo to a temple. And uh, so to say, you had to 
commit yourself materially to the state to show that you are Nepalese and um, the people uh, remain unnamed and um, they are just, so to say, the subjects of the king. If it comes, when it comes to the killing of the animals, um, the view, the, 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 the result is, or the, it is different because uh, the only ones who could kill the buffaloes in the, in the sacrifices were the royals or the kshatriyas who were, so to say, constructed as the apex of the, of the uh, social pyramid. And they, uh, so to say, staged uh, masculine devotion and devotional killing in these uh, sacrificial ar arenas as a, so to say, prime um, worship or devotion, devotional act, so to say, as a devotion to the goddess. And if we then look into what happened uh, to the buffaloes afterwards, we see that they are distributed not to those who killed them, but to, to because the, the consumption of buffalo meat um, was a no-go in traditional Nepal. So the buffalo is an impure animal and uh, whoever eats it is considered a low caste. So um, these killed buffaloes were distributed among people who, so to say, enshrined their lower casteness by accepting that meat. So we see that the whole logistics of the buffalo um, conveys um, particular um, statements about how the, the state is or a Hindu state is organized in, uh, in Hindu or royal Nepal. And but with what we also see, and this we only see after, so to say, arrival of uh, democracy, and also in some earlier period, um, that these, um, so to say, state arguments are also challenged by different groups because Nepal is a multi-ethnic, multi-religious state. And of course, these uh, sacrifices were appropriated in different settings. So by either turning these uh, arguments around or by just celebrating um, the things differently. And this is what I tried to look at. Um, so the competition, the state, so to say, the, the, the statements made by the state by um, dealing with the buffalo and then also the, 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 the arguments against it um, that were uh, brought forth by other groups on the ground. Um, if we look at this um, contestation of um, arguments on, of traditional narratives about uh, Navaratra, um, these um, issues also play a role in the other two papers in that section. So we have Caleb Simmons' paper, Simmons paper um, Domains of Dashara, Reflections on the Struggle for Significance in Contemporary Mysore. So he looks at <coughs> the Mysore celebrations and shows how um, in traditional Mysore, Sorry, in traditional Mysore and also in modern Mysore, these um, <clears throat> these celebrations uh, become a, a, a ground for for struggling about a significance. He starts from the um, historical perspective, <clears throat> so <coughs> focusing on the period when um, the king was still in power, 
and then goes on to um, contrast that historical perspective with the modern perspective. So showing how the uh, Navaratra or the, the Dashara celebrations are held nowadays. And um, he argues that on the one hand, we have the traditional, so to say, um, performative and, 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 and ritual rhetoric that um, the goddess and the king are equated with one another. And this couple of goddess and king uh, produces the power that is then distributed in the whole policy and polity. Um, and if we now look at the, at the modern celebration, something um, very different happens when uh, new political powers come in. Um, so the, the old Raja and the old um, power is, so to say, pushed aside a bit and new, new political actors take their place. And uh, we have this uh, constant um, um, struggling for power and for powerful places in front of the goddess and around the goddess and uh, the struggle for um, carving out significance of such rituals. So we see that um, throughout the history of that um, ritual and of Navaratri rituals in, in general, there's uh, constantly this making and remaking of, uh, of meaningfulness and, and also of, 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 of trying to, um, to um, so to say, channel the power of the goddess for one's own ends. And um, this is, I think, beautifully illustrated by uh, Caleb's papers. And in a similar vein, um, Uwe Skoda's paper um, writes about such power struggles and such um, struggles for, 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 so to say, milking the power of the goddess. Um, in his paper, The Ups and Down of Competing Power Rituals, Dasara and Durga Puja in a former princely state of Odisha, he looks at... Um, the Navaratra celebration in a um, princely state in, in Odisha, in Bonai. And he looks at um, what happens to these uh, celebrations. So there are, so to say, three different actors involved. We have the traditional, um, the traditional um, celebration by the king. And then we have a new, um, new actors coming in. So we have a more um, Bengali style market Doga Puja. And then we have um, another, another RSS uh, Doga Puja being celebrated. And these uh, struggle for significance, but also compete over space. Yeah. And that's, yeah. Uh, fascinating far-reaching papers. Just a, a couple uh, thoughts. I know we need to close soon uh, to, to take care of some commitments. Um, so then, who who is this book for? Who would be interested in this book? What kinds of fields or studies or approaches? Well, I, I would say I, I was um, myself surprised, but um, basically uh, what I think it is an excellent book for teaching um, on Hindu studies. 
So it's not necessarily, I mean, you, you, of course, you can teach about Navaratri, but what is, I think, much more important here is that you can teach through this book um, about different aspects of different Hindu traditions. And uh, it's kind of epitomizes um, different aspects that you might want to focus on. You might, to, might want to, um, yeah, you're, expose your students to. So in that sense, I think it's a perfect book, as is the first book, for students of Hinduism in the much, in a very general sense. But it's at the same time, uh, interestingly, it's also an extremely good book for specialists if you're looking into um, uh, yeah, goddess traditions, if you're looking into Hindu festival traditions, if you want to look at Hindu traditions through local aspects of these traditions. I think it's, yeah, at least I use it a lot in my teaching, much more than I would have thought before we actually came up with these volumes. I couldn't agree more, just, just by chance. and. Uh... But just by chance, uh, this podcast is taking place a couple of days after an uh, AAR meeting. Uh, there's another rock group uh, there. Uh, there'll be another. There'll be another um, a panel next year as well. And the the topic was uh, teaching, uh, hmm. uh, using this for teaching. And it was I had the the the, the pleasure of, of of moderating the discussion, and so much came out of that in terms of ways in which to use this to convey the breadth and depth of Indic traditions um, um, to undergrad students. Um, so I couldn't agree more. Um, was there anything else on the book that you wanted to touch on before we close? No, you're great. Okay, so for those of you listening, we've been speaking uh, to uh, Dr. Uta Huskin uh, of Heidelberg University and also uh, Dr. Astrid Zotter of the, the, the um, Heidelberg Academy of Sciences and Humanities. We've been speaking about um, their brand new Sunni publication, Nine Nights of Power, Durga Dolls and Darbars. Um, until next time, stay safe, stay sane, keep listening and keep contemplating uh, the nine nights of power. Take care.